Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, where we'll be reading you the minutes from Gorham, New Hampshire's fortnightly city council meetings. These minutes were captured and transcribed by NCRA certified stenographer Patricia Rosenthal. The following minutes are from the meeting of Gorham, New Hampshire's city council on the evening of June the 2nd. The first item was a reading of the minutes from the previous city of council meeting held two weeks prior on May the 19th. Now, fun fact, Thomas, those minutes were read by Gorham City Council's acting secretary, Charlotte Allred, who is, of course, standing in for Loretta Stevenson, who is Gorham's regularly elected city council secretary, but currently away from active duty while on maternity leave. You know, this could affect her standing in the next election. Charlotte has been doing a great job as secretary. She has. And she's a doll. Oh, ever so lovely if you should try her cherry pie. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who've been friends since high school. Join us, Mark and Tom, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years, one album at a time. Hey, Mark. Hello, Thomas. Oh, we're being formal today. So this is take two for this episode. We don't have to admit that. Well, I was going to accept blame. Oh, okay. That my audio was borked on my end when I went to edit. And so despite the fact that we spent like two hours and 40 minutes recording this one time already, we are back to do it again. But I just see that as us being able to really optimize and lean in here into what we're uh, what we're going to do. This time we can get it right. We can. We can. Did you have any follow-up from last episode? I had changed my mind about one thing that I had said with regards to Nirvana. You had asked a question in that interview as to what other song I would like to hear. And since we finished with looking at MTV Unplugged, I went ahead and went back and re-listened to Nevermind. Uh And I want to switch position on Lithium specifically, and I think that would have made a really good acoustic version. I agree wholeheartedly. I think on that, the way that he presents the verses would have lent itself well. And then on the chorus, if instead of just yelling, yeah, if he'd have kind of gone the other way with it and made it more of just like a subtle, just a yeah, that could have been really, really impactful. Well, the thing that was really cool about that performance was the way that the band took the music that they had played as, as you know, heavy songs and, and changed it and made it into something different. I think they could have done something cool with Lithium, too. Definitely. I think that one could have lent itself nicely. You know who I don't think would have done a good job with lithium? Alien Ant Farm. Toad the Wet Sprocket. I think we're both correct. I do too. But I'm working on, I really want our podcast to be known for horrible segues. That should not be. But speaking of Toad the Wet Sprocket. (laughs) I was about to say, and I want our podcast to be known for Alien Ant Farm references, but I'm glad you stopped me. (laughs) Uh, no, I'm going to see how many, I'm going to, I want to try to incorporate an alien ant farm into every episode. I'd rather not. Could be a smooth, smooth play. Luckily, they didn't get popular 
until after high school, so they don't fall within to the purview of when they were they were a two thousand two thousand one. Okay, you are correct. The Alien Ant Farm version of Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal debuted and was or was released on May twenty second. And the fact that you know that um, definitely means we need to switch gears here. I remember it being a first year after high school community college memory because it was that and Papa Roach. Oh, gross. Well, P. Roach was from Vacaville, which was the town next to Fairfield where I went to community college. So Papa Roach getting big was like a thing that all the kids that had terrible taste in music at school were excited about because it was local kids making it big. Well, that's more than I wanted to know about Papa Roach. So, But I do have a good P. Roach story that we can get into another time. Or not. That's perfectly acceptable, too. <laughs> oh, it's good. I'll work it into when we do Black Cells and Sunset. Okay. So, today, though, we are talking about Toad the Wet Sprocket. And specifically, we are going a little into the deeper cuts. We are not going to be talking about anything from Fear or Dulcina. We're going into Coil, their... Best album. That was their fifth album. Third major studio release. Is that right? No, they were all in Columbia, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. It was released in 1997 and... May 20th? May 20th, 1997. Just a short four years and two days before before, before Alien Ant Farm. Uh. <laughs> I hate you, Milkman Dan. <laughs> that is our new frame of reference. How far before or after Alien Ant Farm's Smooth Criminal was released. This was the last album that they produced before their initial breakup. The band had some issues coming out of this album, but I think before we jump into this, we need to talk a little bit about their rise to stardom and who Toad the Wet Sprocket was. Yeah. Toad the Wet Sprocket's first big hit came off of the album Fear, and I think that's when anybody thinks about Toad the Wet Sprocket, the first things that come to mind are probably going to be off of this album, like the songs All I Want Mm -hmm. and Walk on the Ocean, which I don't really like Walk on the Ocean, Mark. Yeah, that's my least favorite Toad song. It's not good. And then they start experimenting more with their sound and getting a little more mature with Dulcina. And it's not that I just don't think it's a good song. I don't understand how it was a successful single because it's a boring song. It is boring. It's like mall music, not like Hot Topic mall music. I'm talking like I'm walking through Macy's and they could play that and it'd be fine. Yeah. Because malls, kids, were a thing in the 90s as well where people would go to hang out. (laughs) If you could get a ride. On my other podcasts, we often argue about whether malls are still relevant, and I'm very much on the the side that they are not, but my other co-host, Anthony, is convinced that malls are still somehow relevant. I had a realization the other day. I saw a picture of Anthony, and Anthony looks like modern Adam Duritz without hair. (laughs) You're welcome. He could play Adam Duritz in a movie. (laughs) There we go. We need to write a Christmas movie about About the Crows. Crows. Yeah, it's called Long December. I love it. It writes itself. It does. It does. It's about Adam Dirtz trying to decide which cast member from Friends he wants to date the most <laughs> until his car breaks down in a small town in the Midwest. <laughs> Where he meets a girl whose father owns a an Italian restaurant and they have family problems because she has both celiacs and an allergy to tomatoes. Right. Although we're going to have to take some creative license and give Adam Dirtz a snarky eight-year-old daughter. <laughs> Oh, 
so Dulcina, you'll probably recognize some stuff from that too. Something's Always Wrong and Fall Down were the two big mm-hmm. singles released there. And Fall Down got a lot harder for them than what I'd heard before. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to Coil, which the band itself loved. The studio, not so much. Correct. No joke. When you search Toad the Wet Sprocket, the first song that comes up on Google is Walk on the Ocean. Yeah. I don't get it. They were popular because of, like, college radio, right? Yeah. It's not that they were popular because this is what was playing at your mom's water aerobics class. Right. So somehow... They made that crossover, though. Somehow the age demographic of what is Tastemakers decided to support Walk on the Ocean. After knowing perfectly well that Toad was capable of a song like All I Want. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Have you seen Glenn Phillips' picture on Wikipedia? I have. I think that says a lot about Toad as a band. Well, it reminds me of a quote that he put out. He did an interview that I think we're both going to reference extensively. Probably, In yeah. 2017, he did this interview, and he talked about, well, the quote is, I like that we've managed to be successful and stay anonymous. Yeah. Put Evan Dando next to us, have us both walk down the street, and he'd be mobbed. Now, I think in 2017, that's giving a lot of credit to Evan Dando because the Lemonheads at that point were no longer popular. Nobody cared about them. But I agree that Evan Dando would still be mobbed because he is an incredibly attractive man. Mark's guy crush comes out. It's true. The quote continues, if you hummed our song, they could hum them back to us. The thing is, we've never been cool and we're not cool enough to even be uncool. All people can really write about us is that we have these songs that some find moving. <laughs> I really like that quote because it's not that Gillen Phillips is an unattractive man. Because I won't say that. I don't think he's ugly. But he's not pretty boy rock star. And for the era, he's not, you know, Johnny Resnick trying to be Bon Jovi. You stole my joke. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. As long as it makes it in You're here. <laughs> Yeah, he, he doesn't have that model look to him. He just looks like an average dude. He's aware of it. He's aware of where Toad was. And I think they were always aware of who they were in their place. And whether or not they were always willing to accept that. That's one of the, the themes that I think as we get in talking about this album and the lyrical content, we'll discuss a little bit more. The other thing I think while we're mentioning the um, style that Johnny Resnick went with in the 90s, Mm -hmm. um, he did go from trying to be Bon Jovi to trying to be Kate Gosselin. (laughs) That's rough. Look at Kate Gosselin hair. Look at Johnny Resnick's hair from the 90s. The, The better thing to do is look at how Johnny Resnick has aged compared to how well Bon Jovi has aged. Well, I don't think Bon Jovi's had plastic surgery. Sorry, Johnny Resnick. We promise this isn't all about bashing you. No, I'm a big Johnny Resnick fan. I still like him a lot. Yeah. Did you know Johnny Resnick is one year and four days younger than my mom? I did not. Well, now you do. He was 35 years old, five months, and one day when Alien Ant Farm Smooth Criminal was released. Wow. Anyway, so Coil. Yep. So Toad the Wet Sprocket, they got their name from a Monty Python sketch where they were reading news and they came up with the most ridiculous band name they could think of, Toad the Wet Sprocket. There was another band called Toad the Wet Sprocket that was in the UK that did not get the notoriety that the Santa Barbara 1986 Toad the Wet Sprocket band got. Well, maybe they should have thought about putting out a single as boring as Walk on the Ocean. Mm, That's a good point. The band was started by the vocalist, guitarist, lead songwriter Glenn Phillips, mm-hmm. guitarist Tom Nichols, bassist Dean Dinning, and drummer Randy Gus. Yep. And they started as a band in high school. Yep. Glenn Phillips was only 15 years old. 
part of the mythology around the name is that they formed and they had been playing music and there was a battle of bands coming up and they needed a name for the battle and came up with this and this just kind of stuck Mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily intend it to be the long-term band name but they used it for this battle of the bands which they did not win i don't think the band that did win went on to do much else at least if they did, we haven't heard about it. Nobody's talked about who actually did win that competition, so. Maybe, maybe it was Alien Ant Farm. I don't know. Mm, could have been. I think they were too young, though. I don't know. Glenn was only 15, so. Young bands were hip in the 90s. They were really hip in the 90s. I can think of two. Silverchair and Radish. Oh, Silverchair. Daniel Johns was young, right? Yeah, they were, they were all super young. And then Radish was the... American answer for that was Ben Queller's first band, or at least his first kind of big label project. And he was, you know, 13 to 15-ish. Jimmy World. Jim Atkins was 19 when they released their first album. 18, sorry. So there's another young one for you. Okay. Dryden Mitchell, the lead singer of Alien Ant Farm, was 20 years old when they released their first album. So he was outside of that range in the 90s. Okay. With regards to the Monty Python connection, because obviously To The West Sprocket did fairly well as a band. They had a handful of hit singles, they had a lot of radio play, a lot of MTV and VH1 play. After Dulcina came out, in December of 95, the band had a platinum album award made up. They had a friend who was a mutual acquaintance and had him deliver it to Eric personally, who wrote them a very nice thank you note back and explained that when he came up with the band name, he came up with a name that he thought was so absurd and stupid that nobody would ever use it. And he told the story that he was driving in L.A. the first time he heard a Toad song. They were on the radio, and when the announcer said who the band was, he almost crashed his car. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah. The interview that Mark referenced earlier that we'll be relying on extensively for this is a 2017 interview for The Recoup by Joseph Kyle. It's a retrospective look back at Toad the Wet Sprocket and focuses a lot of the the article around Coil. Mm -hmm. And he's interviewing Glenn Phillips, who's had 20 years to think back on the album and what it meant. Glenn Phillips does say from their perspective as artists, these are their best songs they ever made. And 2017 is after they they got back together and, and recorded another album. So he still looks back at this as their best album they did. Right. There were just so many moving parts and, and tension with the record label and within the band that it also led to their downfall. Speaking of which, we should probably talk about Gavin, who produced the album. Who's Gavin? Coil was produced by Gavin Karen McKillop. McKillop? <laughs> Gavin McKillop. Sorry, Gavin, if I ruin your last name. There's a reason I will, from here out, mostly refer to you just as Gavin. We could go really cool and just refer to, to him as a G. As GMAC? Ooh, I like that. So GMAC had also produced Fear and Elsina, so he'd worked with Toad before on a few projects that had been fairly successful. Yeah. Fear had spent 46 weeks on the charts and it peaked at 49. Dulcina peaked at number 34 on the charts and spent 42 weeks there. And even their anthology collection album that came out between Dulcina and Coil, which was called In Light Syrup, that peaked at 37 and spent 15 weeks on the chart, also produced by Gavin. So they seem to have a pretty good working relationship and an understanding of each other. I'm assuming that that means that the record label thought, hey, they've done good things with Gavin. Let's let that continue, right? That's usually what happens with success. You just keep keep a good thing going? Nope. Oh, really? That's shocking. Record labels thinking they know better than the musicians. 
Right. And Wasn't that a theme on our last episode, too? I mean, you, you can't blame them, right? I mean, Gavin had no, only... No, they got to make the money. Gavin had only produced records for Adam Ant, Midnight Oil, Human League, Big Country, Simple Minds, The Church, Public Image, LTD, The Rembrandt, Sarah McLaughlin, Bare Naked Ladies, and The Goo Goo Dolls. So it's not like he really knew what he was doing. So an all-around nobody. Right. Who did they want to produce the album for them? Glenn had a face-to-face with the head of Columbia and was Donnie sat, Leaner. And was sat down and it was told that they really wanted Toad to work with the producer of Live's Throwing Copper. Jerry Harrison. Right. Because Live with Throwing Copper had been able to put out a handful of hits and sell a bunch of albums, and that album really blew Live up. Glenn Phillips, being the young, honest man that he was, pointed out that Harrison, the producer of Throwing Copper, had also been Live's producer for their first album, Mental Jewelry, which, as an aside, is criminally underrated and overlooked. That album is incredible. 100%. And I don't know how that one didn't blow up, but it didn't. And so Glenn reminded the head of Columbia Records that the same producer that had this hit with Rowan Copper had the flop with the same band with Mental Jewelry. So if Columbia Records really wanted Toad the Wet Sprocket to replicate the success that Live had, then Toad should use the same producer they have been working with for their next record so that record can then match the formula and have the hit with this producer that they're familiar with. Which, of course, that kind of insight went over incredibly well. Columbia loved it. They were found the his attitude refreshing, and they wanted to throw all the money behind this record. <laughs> <laughs> they pretty much left this record to die on the vine. Correct. This was an interesting play for them because Toad was notoriously known for being the cheapest act that they had because they didn't want money. They didn't take advances or anything like that. And this was the first time that Toad took an advance and... Well, took t- t- took a big money advance, yeah. The way that the label system worked at the time was a band would go to the label, the label would advance them X number of dollars, and as long as by the end of spending the money you had an album to show for it, the label was cool because they would then essentially own the band's soul Pay themselves back. until they were paid back. And so lots of bands would take out lots of money because nobody told them they couldn't. They were basically predatory lenders like colleges at the time. Yeah. Toad was smart enough to realize that all they had to take out was enough to just cover the basic costs to make the album, and that means that they should have then been able to start making money on their own quicker because they would have been able to pay it back faster. But record labels really weren't in the business of trying to help bands make any kind of money in any kind of way. So even with the success that they had with their prior hits, they still weren't really making money. And so when it came time to coil, they did decide as a band to take a larger advance. And with that money... Build their own studio. Yep, built their own studio. And part of it was, at that point, no longer being high school kids, they actually were old enough to have families and whatnot. So they built a studio in Santa Barbara, so that way they could be closer to home. But they stuck with Gavin, they trusted Gavin, and listening to this record over and over... They absolutely made the right choice with Gavin. Yeah. I'll talk a little bit more just about how much I enjoy the the mix and the production as we get into this. But So they did not start out well with the record label. The record label didn't put money behind it. It's baffling because I understand that from that meeting, the head of Columbia had his feelings hurt by this little nobody wannabe rock star. And I get from like a business perspective the threat to tell that little nobody who hurt your feelings that you're not going to support him. That's one thing. 
But to then put your head up your own butt far enough to go through with the threat is another. Coil, despite not having any financial advertising backing from the label, when it was released, it debuted at number 19. It peaked higher on the Billboard charts than any prior to the What's Brocket album. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's like Glenn pointed out. They weren't making money. They were getting their 80 cents a record that was sold or whatever. Mm-hmm. But bands like the Pixies hadn't sold anywhere near as many albums as, as they had. But when they came back together, they were selling out venues five times the size of what Toad could do. Right. And I think that brings us back to the earlier quote and the quote-unquote cool factor. They're not cool. Or lack of cool yeah, I mean, I get it. I don't think they would have been on my top list of bands I wanted to see when I was young. I mean, maybe if I was tired and, like, they did a show where they had a bunch of sleeping bags laying around, it would have been perfect. <laughs> Glenn's dulcet tones could have lulled us all to sleep. <laughs> if only Glenn had played the Cypher Theater lock-in. <laughs> if only there was a theater lock-in. That would have been fun. That would have been amazing. I don't think Mrs. Kern would have wanted anything to do with, no? Yeah, Candace would not have handled it. Let's dive into the album. It's a different sound for them. It's a lot more mature than what we found before. Yeah, for a long time, it's been my favorite Toad album. And I think a lot of that is because it feels like Toad finally becoming a quote-unquote rock band. The album itself is its more deliberate and less meandering than previous efforts. Not that the prior albums are bad, but it just kind of, they feel disjointed. And on this one, pretty much every track... Lyrically, it kind of fits into like a theme of introspection. And, and then this- I think that's one of the reasons it's held up so well is it's a man who's, you know, entering a new stage of his life, writing the songs. He's 30 now. He's mm-hmm. looking back at where he's been. Yeah. And I think the people who grew up hearing Toad, that's where we are going to be for the rest of our lives, right? Certainly. I mean, I, I know for, my, for myself, high school Mark responded to the rock veneer, whereas old band Mark, <laughs> now I respond to the lyrical maturity and the growth throughout. It's not just, hey, this album has electric guitars finally. Yeah, that was a different play for Toad in this. It was. To step away and cite a different Glenn Phillips interview, in 97, prior to the release of Coil, in the Billboard press release, he said, I came into this album for the first time thinking we were really good. I'm not trying to be egotistical, but it's really the first time I've allowed myself to be proud. That's kind of saying a lot after you have the song that's still... You still hear All I Want on the radio all the time. Right. You've had half a dozen singles that are getting MTV play, getting constant radio play. And you're finally saying that for the first time, I feel that as a band, we're actually good. I feel like we need to interject here. For kids listening today, MTV used to be music television. (laughs) All the news, everything would be about music. There were no real world, whatever else, keeping up with the Kardashians, whatever else they're doing. If it wasn't music, it wasn't on there. And it used to be so much fun to watch. I think one thing that Glenn is kind of touching on, and he goes into a little more detail later in the article, is, like he says, he's not trying to be egotistical, but part of it is just recognizing the absurdity of being a musician as a profession and the idea of trying to make people care about your inner dialogue. And that's that's something that it takes a certain amount of self-confidence and ego and for somebody who's writing songs that are all about introspection and the potential of trying to become a better man, it seems directly at odds with that kind of required ego. And some of the songs on the album kind of address that kind of internal headbutting. Let's jump on into where the album starts. And that is track one, Whatever I Fear. Whatever I Fear was released as the second single. However, for the first time in 
recent Toad history, it had failed to chart as a single. The song itself starts in regular Toad fashion with an acoustic guitar, although the tempo is a bit faster than Toad's usual brand of subdued soft rock. It opens up a lot harder than anything Toad's done before. Right, it, it starts kind of... The, the album opens up, I should say, with a song that gets harder. Right, right. So the, the tempo of this one starts off and it feels a bit faster, but it's still kind of acoustic guitar, and that lasts for a whole 12 seconds. Yeah. When the electric guitar enters, it riffs, it fades out, and it's kind of like Toad dipping their toes into the waters of rock. Because the song still isn't necessarily an electric-driven song, it does have additional electric guitar throughout, and it's used more as a texture that works really nicely with the drums and the bass. And it's also occasionally offset with some harmonic guitar notes. But for the most part, again, it's still an acoustic-driven song, so it's kind of familiar kind of letting people know that we're going to be in for a bit more of a ride yeah for sure say so i think it makes sense the music scene changed a lot between fear released 91 still seen a 94 grunge had come and gone and we're, we're just kind of at a different stage of where music is so they as they matured as a band they begin to incorporate some of what they were hearing around them as well right i think to their credit though with grunge coming and going they never tried to play into grunge nope. and so they were always able to just be themselves and do their own thing and I think to their credit, I mean, obviously, the higher-ups at Columbia Records would disagree, but, I mean, I, it helped Toad be able to keep their sound and develop their sound and grow their sound. Yep. But with growing that sound, I think this particular track is a starter. It's a great one right out the gate, not just a showcase of the musicianship that follows on the record, but it also it's a great showcase of how a record should be mixed. Because you have all the different layers. Each is crisp and clear. They're playing together. They're not necessarily living in the same sonic space so that one is overpowering another. Nothing's getting lost. Nothing's getting muddled in the mix. Yeah. And again, a lot of credit given, a lot of respect to, to G-Mac for, <laughs> for his work on this album. Because it's, from a production standpoint, it's a very, very good record. Lyrically, whatever I fear as an opening track, it plays sort of like a thesis statement for the album. It's centered on those themes of self-doubt, self-discovery. And this one is maybe showcasing a little bit more of that disenchantment, not just with the world and Toad's place in it, but especially their place within the music industry at the time. Yeah. And it's reflected in the lyrics. It starts off the very first verse of the first song on the album. There's almost nothing left. You eat my kind for breakfast. What did I expect? To come here and find anyone, find open arms to greet me, friends to feed me. I sicken myself so much. You eat my kind for breakfast, you eat my kind. And that sounds like a great analogy for, for the music business, for where it was, for their relationship with the label. I don't know how much of this was written before that meeting, how much was written after that meeting, but it certainly feels like it's hitting that nail on yeah. the head. Well, I mean, he goes even more in depth throughout the thing. He talks about how he perceives himself, how he sees himself as a monster, mm -hmm. and that all he has left is doubt. It's a good introspective song. I agree with you. It, it does start as kind of a banner for where the album is going to go. Yep. From there, track number two, Come Down. Not to be confused with their 1990 single, Come Back Down. This was the first single from Coil. It was released in April of 97, so it was a month before the album dropped. Yeah. And this song, again, despite support from the label, it peaked at number 51 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. With no promotion, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, when your label says you're not going to support you, it's, it's pretty good. Um, 
also seems pretty pig-headed of the label to see this coming out of the gate with something on the billboard as it's released and still deciding not to go all in on it. To be fair, Billboard has a handful of different charts, and the Hot 100 is a song-specific. It's not album. And as far as getting on, I mean, it's still an impressive feat, but it's not say, as impressive as the album sells charts. So the fact that Coil came out and was number 19 on the sales chart. 19? That, that is incredible. That's what I mean. The indicators were all there that this should be a successful album, right? Right. But then it only spent 12 weeks on the chart because it didn't have the lasting support to keep pushing it. But coming in at 19 with no support yet, it's it's baffling why the label didn't do more for them. Come Down is an electric guitar-driven track. This one starts off, it's just all electric. Musically, it feels a lot like it's maybe borrowed from the Gin Blossoms catalog. It does sound a lot like the Gin Blossoms. I don't think anyone who was a Toad fan would say that that's a bad thing. No. I think if you like Toad, you probably like the Gin Blossoms as well. Toad, Gin Blossoms, early Goo Goo Dolls all seem to kind of fit together. Yeah. This is one that was an all-electric track and was kind of keeping up that pace established by the first one. And like you said, this this album opened a lot hotter than their prior records. And from there, they go right into track three, which is called Rings. Rings was another blend of acoustic and electric guitars. And it keeps up the rock pace established on the previous tracks. Lyrically, this one is probably the most metaphorical lyrically on the album. Well, I mean, he opens up with the the words, Are you the plane that shapes the board part of history? Like, that's obviously we're getting into some sort of non-surface level stuff here, right? Yeah. To me, it's a lot of metaphor examining memories as if memories were rings of a tree. You can draw the parallels there from the ups and downs of a relationship over time. And of course, there's the obvious connected symbolism of wedding rings. And I know this was one of your favorites. It was one of my favorites. I like the whole song, but at the end where he gets, isn't it strange how truth can change? And then he starts the memories that he has. And oh, the windy weather. This ring tells of rain. This one summer, dry spells, brush fire. You see he's looking back at his life at all the different seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which again, I connect more with this in my year turning 40, I think, than I probably would have before. I dig it. It's a good song. It is. I don't know if there's really anything on here that I would say is a a bad song, and that's one of the strengths of the album. I do get bored a little later, but... But you get bored easy. Christine still complains about watching movies with me. As she should. (laughs) Because, yeah, I could have warned her about that. (laughs) Well, some of her first dates were movies, so she should have known. She only has herself to blame. (laughs) I gave her plenty of advance notice. Nobody forced her to say yes. (laughs) As a matter of fact, many people, including you, asked her if she was sure she knew what she was doing. Track four, Damn Would Break. (laughs) Just trying to keep us on track here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dammerbeck is a perfect example of how good the band had become and how well they're playing together as a full unit. Yep. This one, it does kind of slow things on the album down a little bit tempo-wise, but not too much. It's still kind of an aggressively driven melody. We're still on the same journey. We're not... Right. There's nothing jarring. Like, if you're listening to this album in its entirety, in order, this fits after Rings. Certainly. I'm saying it's down-tempo a little bit. It's just the the BPMs come down a little bit 
Well, it kind of has to for what we're building to. Yeah, it can't all be Rise. No. But again, the guitar, it's, it's still, like I said, it's kind of like an aggressively attacked melody. And the music takes kind of a darker turn for the first time. It does. Um, a lot of, to now, even though they've been like upbeat, they've been kind of, um, and this one lets you know that maybe we're, we're getting real. Like with Fear, this, again, the start's acoustic. The electric guitar comes in early. It comes in at eight seconds. Very specific. Good job. <laughs> I mentioned that for a specific reason. Part of it is, again, how much I enjoy the production of this album and the mix. And yeah. how I think that this is a showcase for how good the band had been. There's a nice bit at that point when the electric enters. And it enters, and at the end of that opening lick, it sets up the pace and rhythm of what the rhythm section plays that and with that opening lick it also holds the last note in a way that that note blends into the entrance with the bass and the drums and then the bass and the drums take over that pace and rhythm and those become the main driving force moving the track forward and so it's again the band working as a whole and it's not that it's just oh here's an acoustic guitar and then drums right it's it's one of those things where it's it's blended together in a way that it just works naturally and you just flows and you don't even think about it until you're like oh that happened well they did that thing yeah it's also a great vocal performance from Glenn yeah it covers a lot of ground and shows off more of his range than we usually see especially later mm-hmm. in the track Despite the fairly normal, low-key default place that Glenn starts his delivery on the verses, there's still points where it builds, and throughout the track, he lets loose a little bit. Yeah, and of course, and it's a pretty it's a pretty enjoyable journey to go on. It is, and lyrically, it's another that displays his growth and skill as a songwriter. And lyrically, one of my favorite verses from the album. Which one is that? Is the second verse on here? It says. What is this ice that gathers round my heart to stop the flood of warmth before it even starts? It would make me blind to what I thought would always be the only constant in the world for me. And every hour of every day, I need to fight from pulling away. And if my mind could only lose that chain, the dam would break. Getting depressing, bro. Um, getting real, I think. Getting real. Because, I mean... No, it is. Because it's a... It's a... It's more vulnerable. Right. Right. It's addressing that vulnerability, and that sounds depressing. Mm -hmm. But then again, it's also discussing how to work through it and how to pull yourself out of it. Well, those things that we get stuck in that we have to, that we do have to change ourselves in order to see growth, a lot of that is acknowledging the depressing parts, right? Certainly. It's an interesting psychological growth, which, I mean, again, let's go back to, I know we keep talking about how boring Walk on the Ocean is, and then you've got All I Want. Those are so much poppier and exhibit less depth and less vulnerability. I kind of wonder, I mean, just thinking about, you know, how this developed and how they got to this point. So that's... Glenn said this is the first time he felt confident that they had talent, that they were doing something. And it seems like that's what enabled him to open up, right? Um, To an extent. I'd almost disagree with you a little bit about All I Want in the general research of this album and Toad stuff, looking back at All I Want. I think there's an argument to be made that All I Want is less the relationship song that people play it off as okay. and more of an actual internal struggle, an internal dialogue of it's not All I Want is to feel this way in that like All I Want is to hang on to this moment of love with this partner, but... All I want is these these internal things. 
Yeah, that doesn't explain why people play this on dates all the time, though. Yeah, well, why do people play Born in the USA on the 4th of July as a pro-America <laughs> song? I don't, that, I don't know. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to All I Want tonight as I'm drifting off to sleep with that in mind and reconsider my preconceived notions about that song. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like any good song, there's multiple layers to it and multiple things that can be read into it. Like an onion? No. I just, whenever I talk, I think about multiple layers. I just think of Shrek. I figured. So from there, we go to track five, Desire. If you go back and you look at any review, everyone talked about Desire as Toad's quote-unquote rock song. And Glenn described it as being embarrassingly crotch-driven. <laughs> oh. Lyrically, it's essentially a list of internal things that he wants. And if you let the bass side of you run things, it's the kind of things that internally your brain is going to be like, these are okay. This is how you should feel about stuff. And it's interesting because like, as much talk as there was about this one song, nobody really in any of those reviews delved into the content of the song beyond Lynn's one quote. Yeah. With the exception of one person who then also addressed Columbia Records and the idea that Columbia wasn't supporting this album. Part of what their complaint was was that they thought that maybe that some of the singles weren't the right songs to be singles. And for the amount of press that this song got, this song maybe should have been a single. I mean, if you have that many people talking about the song to begin with, probably so. That's free press. And the quote that goes along with it is, although the song Desire is not typical of what had been established as Toad the Wet Sprocket's sound, I would patiently remind Columbia Records that a little band from Georgia called Collective Soul had hit after hit with songs just like this one. <laughs> Whoa, heaven let your light shine down. Yeah. Musically, this sounds very much like a Collective Soul song. And for Columbia wanting the band to replicate other bands' success, again, say, okay, we will give you some money, but you need this song to be a single. And just the fact that they wouldn't even do that, it's still just baffling. Yep. I don't remember at the time, nor in retrospect, many people talking about how wonderfully record labels manage bands. I have never really heard anybody say, you know what, they did such a good job with X. <laughs> well, right? I mean, the major labels weathered the Napster storm so well, how can you talk ill of them? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of surprising that more people didn't just jump ship and start their own indie labels sooner. It certainly helps that the technology has finally advanced to the point that makes it an easier thing to do in theory. Technology and reach. Any Tom, Mark, or Harry can set up a Facebook page now, you know. Yeah, and no, I mean, as, as somebody who's done it. That's what I mean. Like, anybody can do this <laughs> now. It's a matter of just being willing to do the legwork. The reason that Burrow Baracho started came about from me and Sean sitting around asking, what if we've got this band? How do we make more people care about the band? How do we put on shows with bigger name bands that people are going to want to go to? Let's look up on the internet, email their management, and find out what it would take to set up a show with so-and-so. The worst thing that can happen is they don't respond to an email, right? Yeah. At the time, this was on the cusp of the internet becoming a big thing, right? Like, 97? Yeah. 
I don't think most people would think, let's put our booking terms up on the internet right. and let people find us. At that point, it was much harder to do. It was harder to get in touch with venues. Venues themselves, you can book as easily because people wanted you to send in a physical press kit. They wanted you to call them. Yeah. Nobody had email. Nobody had MySpace. Even the concept of touring, Charles had a band before he went solo and I started working with him. And he kind of was the tour manager of his band. And for every tour that they did, he would build a binder that had maps and it had phone numbers and it had, you know, contracts and all of these things. And, and this was in like 2003. Wow. So the internet was still kind of a thing, but you didn't have constant access to it. Yeah, you didn't have your iPhone in your wallet in your pocket that you could just pull out. And the phones weren't as smart and the, the coverage wasn't as good. No, I still had a GPS TomTom at that time. And snakes still came on phones for free. They did. Man, those were the good days, weren't they? Yep. The only game you had, you could play for like three minutes and you were bored with. It was nice. Are you kidding me? Snake got me through an entire NSYNC concert. <sighs> so don't fade. Yeah, don't fade. Track six. Follows desire by moving in the opposite direction. And this one is, I guess for that reason, the hardest for me to get into of the songs on this album. It also, one of the things that up until this point that I briefly touched on earlier, I think that this album does well is kind of the contrast. Like the lyrics, mm -hmm. the lyrics aren't always the happiest, but you still mm -hmm. have upbeat tones. You still have bright, good music tracks behind them. Toad sound. Right. Whereas this yep. is slow, depressing lyrics paired with slow, depressing music. To its credit, it probably does deliver the most Old Toad sound of the album. Like I said earlier, that a lot of the Old Toad albums were kind of meandering, and some of them had, you know, maybe not necessarily depressing, but lyrically slow songs with musically slow backing tracks. Right. I think what we talked about at the beginning of this was this was a shift in a maturity for Toad. Right. And this does not sound like a shift or a mature Toad song. No, that's, that's why I say it delivers the most Old Toad sound on the album at least up to this point right i wonder if you would have liked it more if it had been on fear for example you know um i don't know yeah i think maybe it would have been easier to get into but i will say that to its credit because of what it does and kind of that sense of despair that you get from it it does mm -hmm. a great job of setting up that contrast for track seven little man big man we do see a strong juxtaposition coming in between these two yeah, it helps create that greater contrast for the brightness of this song to live in. Of the crappy song. And the lightness of the opening acoustic guitar. I like this song. I know you do. We talked about this last time. Yeah, it's not reinventing things, sure, but it's another one that you've got a nice light acoustic guitar bit going on, and I think the darkness of the prior track helps that guitar shine. And it's also another that's really bass and drum driven, and it just sits on a nice, solid groove that I think you have to be dead inside if it doesn't make you want to just kind of like bob your head along to the music. Thanks, Mark. Are you dead inside, Tom? I think we both know the answer to that question. Who hurt you? Mark, who hasn't hurt me? Exactly. Little Man Big Man does seemingly have overly simplistic lyrics. Yeah. But it's still on brand with the central message around the introspection and growth by illustrating the duality video of games. man's eternal struggle against himself. I don't know where you get video games. Oh, yes, I do know where you get video games from. You know exactly where I get... Well, I, I don't think he says video games, but you know exactly what I mean. I just keep thinking about video games for some reason when he's singing that last line. That's this chorus, right? Where he's like, it's all in the violence in the games that we play or something? Little man, big man, fade away. It's all in the violence of the games we play. Okay, that's it. I just superimpose video games into that for some reason. Probably because I've been playing a lot of Kirby <laughs> on Switch. 
I think probably you looked it up on Lyric Genius as somebody said Little Man Big Man was a Mario reference. Dude, dude, I do not go look at Lyric Genius. <laughs> That's where if there's a place L- Lyric where Genius you can find is where out. Tom does ninety nine point nine percent of his research for these episodes. I do have a question. Have you ever seen anything on Lyric Genius where you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Lyric Genius is 90% dude sitting on the couch in his mom's basement, smoking weed, eating Doritos. Listening to Alien Ant Farm. Listening to Alien Ant Farm and writing on a website. The kind of people website. who make comments on Lyric Genius are the kind of people who bought the Alien Ant Farm record. <laughs> We just lost both of our listeners. The one who likes Alien Hand Farm and the one who likes Lyric Genius. Good riddance. <laughs> I, if, if that's our leadership, I am perfectly okay to just throw it all away. <laughs> now, how did that segue rate on the Tom scale? That's up there. Track eight. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. That was banger, Mark. Thank you. I love how the song builds, starts with a simple acoustic guitar and vocal track, and then additional parts come in, and they add until it's a full band playing complete with soloing electric guitar, and Glenn letting loose vocally, and it builds in such a natural way. Again, it feels just like the band is an incredibly well-oiled machine, and with all the parts working together, nobody's trying to stand out. Nobody's saying, that's what's impressive. Nobody's saying, hey, look at me, I'm playing now, it's Everybody's just doing their job for the greater good. I don't remember us talking about that or mentioning that the last time we recorded, but I think you just nailed right on the head to exactly why I like this album. Mm -hmm. And why I like Toad in general. There are no showboats. Yeah. We don't have to worry about any Dryden Mitchells. (laughs) Is that the guy from Alien (laughs) Far? That is the lead singer of Alien (laughs) Far. Uh, nobody is trying to overpower guitar solos and nobody's trying to steal attention nope. for the camera with a haircut that says I should shoot my barber. Nobody's taking pictures with a, with a chimpanzee. Did they do photos with the chimpanzee? Uh, they, when I Googled him, that's the first thing that comes up is him sitting on a metallic chair with a chimpanzee who looks frightened in his lap. All I remember is how much I wanted to punch him in the face because of his haircut. You know what's funny about that? Uh, he punched one of their fans in the face after having urine thrown on him during a gig <laughs> in 2016. <laughs> 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 you know what? That'll, based on where Alien Ant Farm is as a band, that will probably quickly um, catapult our SEO to where we are the number one search when anybody looks for anything with Alien Ant Farm. Now, unlike Alien Ant Farm's cover of Smooth Criminal, Throw It All Away is lyrically deep. It's a straightforward and somber track. It is. But it's also incredibly hopeful. That's the interesting paradox that Glenn built into these lyrics here, right? Yeah. Lyrically, his writing continues to be great. In this one, I'm just going to read a little bit. Take the story you've been told, the lies that justify the pain, the guilt that weighs upon your soul, and throw them all away. Tear up the calendars you've bought, throw the pieces in the sky confetti falling down like rain like a parade to usher in your life take the dreams that should have died the ones that kept you lying awake when you should have been all right and throw them all away with the time i waste on the life i never had i could have turned myself into a better man 
I also like how it's a tired motif that we hear a lot, but he brings it to literally to cleaning house at the end to wrap it up. The imagery he uses is something that we can all relate to. So he takes a, a somewhat tired metaphor of cleaning house and makes it applicable still. Makes it relatable. Yeah. Very much so. And followed, track nine is called Amnesia. What's it called? What's what called? <laughs> I don't know why I have these goggles. <laughs> I don't know why we still think this, that kind of joke is funny. Because there's going to be one person out there who knows who Happy Time Harry was. <laughs> track nine, Amnesia. Now, if Don't Fade is the most traditional Toad track on the album, then Amnesia is my vote for best example of if classic Toad discovered distortion pedals. <laughs> it's not as straightforward of the rock song as Desire. But it does manage to build a solid wall of sonic guitar tones that holds up the darker tone of the track, the emotional delivery of the vocals, and the intensity of the lyrics. All that checks out. And again, he's continuing continuing those, those same ideas. Says, here I need your help. Deliver me from myself. Take me where I'm wanted. Or make me someone else. Just writing that lyrical theme. I never dreamed we were so blind, amnesia and comfort so unkind. I like it. Mm-hmm. What You know what I really don't like? What do you really don't like? I really don't like Little Buddha. Little Buddha is track 10. Mm-hmm. It continues to ride the dark wave of amnesia. It's like an overly somber cooldown period. Only, this one has a string accompaniment. The one other thing that pretty much every review went out of its way to talk about, other than how Desire was the big rock track, was that Little Buddha had a string accompaniment arranged by Van Dyke Parks. Mm-hmm. And Van Dyke Parks is somebody who everybody seemed super excited that he had done the string arrangements and was somebody that I had absolutely no idea who it was. No clue. I had to look him up. Had you heard of him before? No, not before we recorded last time. Since we've lost that recording, I will give a little bit of background into Van Dyke Parks. I think this may be why the last recording went for two and a half hours was because of his meager resume. And it's okay if you don't recognize the name. You will probably recognize something from his body of work. He started out as a child actor. He had a recurring role as the upstairs kid on the TV show The Honeymooners, which in of itself should give you some context for when he was born, how old he was, because <laughs> he was on The Honeymooners. One of these days, Mark. Which I don't know why I even know what The Honeymooners is, other than the fact that they make a reference to it in Futurama. Futurama, Family Guy, and South Park all reference. So Honeymooners is a show that's old enough that Futurama makes a reference to the Honeymooners having been forgotten about entirely and the lead character being credited as being the first astronaut because his catchphrase was one of these days, Alice. Bam, zoom, straight to the moon. And as Fry points out, he wasn't an astronaut. He just used space travel as a metaphor for beating his wife. He also performed as a child with various operas and musical organizations around New York. He played the lead role in a production of the Metropolitan Opera's Amal of the Night Visitors. He studied music at Carnegie Institute of Technology under Aaron Copeland. He spent three years studying music from Aaron Copeland. And after three years, he decided to drop out. Parks performed with The Birds and Frank Zappa and The Mothers of Invention. He declined an offer to join Crosby, Stills, and Ashen Young. 
He worked on the arrangement of the song The Bare Necessities for the Jungle Book soundtrack, as well as composed scores for Sesame Street, the Robin Williams live-action Popeye movie, and Pee-wee's Playhouse Christmas special. He composed the song Black Sheep for Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, and he contributed four songs to The Brave Little Toaster. He was a longtime on and off again collaborator of Brian Williams and the Beach Boys. And amongst his Beach Boys credits, he helped write Kokomo. He was one of the very first owners of a prototype synthesizer that turned into the first model of Moog. <gasps> really? I know, I know you love Moogs. Oh, I do. I love the Moog. Additionally, he'd done compositions and arrangements for more contemporary acts. In addition to Toad, he had done string arrangements for Sheryl Crow, Skrillex, Skrillex. U2, and he did a lot of work with Silverchair on some of their later albums. In addition to all of that, he even played the part of Jack Rancine, who was Leo Johnson's lawyer on an episode of Twin Peaks. This dude's interesting as heck, dude. Yeah. This guy is interesting. Yeah, and that's just the brief highlights. There is a story that I came across about how he and some guy were out in the desert just poking around a ghost town. And they came across, yeah. like, this group of people that were also just out poking around this ghost town who happened to be a band. And this was, like, in the 60s, right? Yeah. And Van Dyke Parks, his look was very square. He had glasses and a collared shirt and, you know, maybe a tie. He didn't look like a hippie. And so they meet this hippie band in this ghost town in the desert and they start talking and the band is dismissing everything that he has to say until he's like, okay, well, let me play a song for you. And he picks up a guitar and he plays something and then he produces that band's next record. Who was it? I don't recall. It was someone that I had never actually heard of. Oh, that's still pretty cool. Any number of those single accomplishments by their own would be incredibly interesting. But adding them all together is just just having played with Frank Zappa, right? That's that's enough. That's pretty impressive. Being asked to join a band like Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young and deciding, nah, I'm okay. I don't need I'm to do good. that. He what? probably just decided the name would get way too long at that point. I mean, turning down Crosby, Stills, and Nash, that's... Yeah. Sometimes it's more impressive what you don't do than what you do do, right? Absolutely. I mean, and especially if you've got the apparent swagger to back it up. Yep. Oh. Uh, anyway. So having learned that, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I see why everybody made such a fuss about Van Dyke Parks doing the strange arrangements for the song. After we recorded last time, I went back and listened specifically to the strings. Mm -hmm. Really good. So the song itself kind of plays through as a fairly mellow track, and it fades out around 240, but that proves to be a false ending. The electric guitar solos back in, and then it's joined even stronger with the string section and onslaught of Buddhist chanting. Yep. The lyric sheet, if you look it up on any lyric site, in addition to Lyric Genius, the main lyrics are... <laughs> in addition to Lyric Genius. <laughs> I was trying to work another another one in there for you. They should be sponsoring us by now. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Lyric Genius and Alien Ant Farm. <laughs> and that's how we got canceled. <laughs> the song has a false ending... The electric guitar comes back and brings the strings, and they're going, like I said, there's Buddhist chanting. And at this point, the lyrics only say one word. It only says Maya. I asked before who was Maya, mm -hmm. and you said you did some research, and you yeah. brought some back to the table? 
Phillips himself, he was born and raised Jewish, like he'd had a bar mitzvah and whatnot, but at some point in his teenage years, the family kind of shifted away from the structured Jewish faith into more exploratory realms, and he's explored a lot of Buddhism himself. And so Maya, as a term, has a handful of different meanings in various spiritual philosophies, but given Phillips' Buddhist leanings and the song title itself is Little Buddha, my loose understanding is based off of what the idea of Maya as a word represents within Buddhism. Oh. And within that, Maya refers to the deceptive nature of the ego and its perception of the world or the physical and mental realities our consciousness can become entangled in. Well, I don't want to correct you here. But I did go out check out a Lyric Genius. Okay. What's Lyric Genius have to say about Maya? I have a general comment from somebody in 2015 who said, I feel like this song is about someone who's going through hard times. Hence, life is suffering. And even though he keeps hitting the rough parts of life, he still laughs. That's kind of something I'm still working on in life. I have no response to that because Lyric Genius is stupid. I've got another quote from songmeanings.com that I feel is applicable. And you feel obligated to quote this random stranger. We're, we're perfectly okay with libel and speaking things that may or may not be true. But according to the superhero boy on March 3rd, 2003, Sid Glenn said that one of his friends had a little Buddha statue sitting on his table. And he would always pick it up and say, life is suffering. Tee hee ha ha. And it became so popular with his friends that he turned it into a song. At this point, I feel that we should mention that the lyrics of the song are literally, life is suffering, tee-hee, ha-ha. I thought I said... That's the first verse. I thought I said that at the beginning. I pay so little attention to you, I wasn't... God, you sound like my mom. <laughs> uh, all of those things can still fold into the idea of, of what that term of Maya means and the way that it's presented in the song. They, they can, yeah, for sure. There's the idea in Buddhism that nothing of the physical world is actually real. It's all perception of the mind. And so if Maya is, again, referring to the mind deceiving us as a result of personal ego, I think that still fits within the overall theme of how do we work past the ego to perceive the good and not just let our subconscious lie to us and get us entangled in all these things that don't matter. It does. So we can just smile on, little Buddha. Smile on, which makes sense when you consider that the final line before going into that false ending is, it's only illusion, and then you're gone. That's just how crazy life is, right? It is. Track 11, the third single off of Coil, is called Crazy Life. This one, however, was recorded in 1994 during the session for Dulcina. It was left off that album, but it was picked up and used on the Empire Records soundtrack. It's a great soundtrack. So if this sounds familiar, it's not just because it was on that soundtrack, but it's also because this version that was used, instead of re-recording the song, they used that same version. They cut the intro down a little bit, they sped up the tempo a bit, and then they added a new organ and backing vocal tracks. Good job, G-Mac. So apparently they got it right the first time that they didn't really need to do it over. They just made some minor adjustments, some smoke and mirrors, bam, new version. And this brings us out of that meditative gloom and returns us to a lighter and more upbeat, full-bodied, 
banger band sound of the confident matured toad and despite being recorded three years prior to the rest of the coil tracks the fact that it fits in so well proves that first off toad was still toad it also presents a valid supporting argument for the idea that this fuller rock sound wasn't actually such a new departure from classic toad after all if you remember that the song was recorded during the tracking for dulcina mm-hmm. crazy life would have fit in on that album just as well to songs like something's always wrong and especially fall down so with that hindsight you can see that instead of toad shifting it was actually foreshadowing the direction toad was moving and they clearly as a band like we said they never chased the grunge sound right no i know we haven't really discussed it yet but i know that when we first started reviewing this album it was a hard sell for you because how much it reminded you of other albums of the era absolutely that late 90s rock sound that we got from goo goo dolls matchbox 20 and matchbox 20 and the blowfish and it felt like it was chasing it feels more like it's chasing rem than their other stuff was Mm mm-hmm so I think that this actually foreshadows the direction Toad is moving, and not only that, but since they clearly weren't chasing a sound, or at least they weren't chasing a trend with Coil, I think the album itself deserves a greater credit for proving to be the influence of what would be that sound that became so popular with like Dizzy Up the Girl and Matchbox 20. It's a sound that Toad had obviously already established Absolutely. in 94, 95. Yeah. On the long list of things that are criminal for them not getting recognition for, it's being a greater influence into what became that pop rock date safe rock sound. Vocals on this one were not Glenn, but these were done by the band's lead guitarist, Todd Nichols. I don't always like it when the when other band members sing songs, but this one I'm okay with. Yeah, sometimes it's sometimes it's jarring. Sometimes there I miss it. There are few bands that do it that I like a lot when they do it, but. I thought Jimmy did it well on some of their earlier records, and I kind of miss... Oh, I totally miss hearing Tom on Jimmy World albums. <laughs> you would miss someone named Tom. I would, but songs like Episode 4, the dude's great. Blister, unbelievable. Yeah. Rockstar. Crazy Life. It's another one that musically is incredibly bright and vibrant, and seems kind of like a really upbeat, happy song, right? Um, on first listen, yes. Lyrically, the song that was written so far from the rest of the songs on Coiled that it should be that lyrical anomaly. But it's not. Like, it shouldn't necessarily fit. If you examine the lyrics of this, which I did because last time you had asked, why is he making reference to Wounded Knee? And I didn't have an answer for you. I looked it up, and it's not just a reference to the Wounded Knee, because part of the song, it repeats throughout, what have they done with Pelter? Who do you think you've taken away? And I realized that in our lyric sheet that we have Pelter lowercase, and it should be capitalized because it's a gentleman's name. It's making reference to Leonard Pelter, and this song on the surface and as a whole is about the mistreatment of both Native Americans throughout the history of this country and more specifically trying to raise awareness about Leonard Pelter and his imprisonment. There's also the line in here. The opening verse is, Anyway now, it don't seem right. He's in there and you're on the outside. Over Pine Ridge to Wounded Knee. There's blood on the ground as far as you can see. Crazy life. Pine Ridge and Wounded Knee are two specific places. There's a lot of history around Pine Ridge, which is a reservation, and most of it is not good. 
Originally, it was established as a camp for indigenous prisoners of war. The Wounded Knee Massacre site is on the Pine Ridge Res, yep. as well as the 1975 shootout that left two FBI agents dead, which Pelter was later convicted and is still imprisoned for. Despite inconsistencies from the United States government and witnesses recanting their statements. Not just inconsistencies and not just witnesses recanting, but witnesses recanting because of claims that they were pressured by, by the, the FBI, FBI to give false testimony. And it was false testimony that got Pelter extradited from Canada back to the U.S. to stand trial. Yep. It was all based off of testimony of a woman who claimed to have been his girlfriend at the time, who he didn't know, nobody of his friends that were around knew, and she also said that the feds coerced her and forced her to make this false statement. And she was a vulnerable person because she had mental health issues. Right. Beyond that whole instance, Pine Ridge in general, it's not just the poorest of the reservations. It's the poorest county in the nation. The United States, yep. It's the lowest per capita income, the highest infant mortality rate, the lowest life expectancy, not just in the U.S., but anywhere in the Western Hemisphere apart from Haiti. The life expectancy of men is 48 years old. For women, it's 52. Good night. Yeah. And so, not to make light of any of that, but the sentiment does kind of echo little Buddha's mantra of life is suffering. Yeah, it does. And if that doesn't, I don't know what does. Before we leave Pelter, I want to point out that the international community has been pushing for his clemency Mm -hmm. for decades He's been in prison since 77. Right, but Nelson Mandela, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Dalai Lama, Mm -hmm. several Nobel Peace Laureates, Mother Teresa. Bono. The UN High Commissioner on Human Rights, the UN Working Group on Indigenous People, the European Parliament, the Belgian Parliament, the Italian Parliament, the International Federation of Human Rights, Amnesty International, the Kennedy Memorial Center for Human Rights, the Committee of Concerned Scientists, the National Lawyers Guild, and the American Association of Jurists have all pushed for his clemency. Pope Francis has recently brought it up again. Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton would not give him pardon or clemency when they were asked to. In fairness to this issue as a whole, he has also been very inconsistent with his alibi. He has given dozens of interviews and dozens of drastically different stories as to where he was at the time that this went down. Yeah. Not to say that he is or isn't guilty or is or isn't deserving of being free. It is an issue that there's a lot to it. And I think this song, like the band, like many of other people, it's worth encouraging you, the listener, to look into on your own. Look into it. Look at all the evidence. Look at the lack of evidence. Look at both sides. Looking lyrically at this, you have all of that history, you have all of those layers to the song, that depth of meaning. And through it, despite all of that, it's still not all about the negative. No, there's still hope. Right. There's still an idea that change for the better is possible. Yep. And despite everything, people aren't giving up. The last line of the song is, it's not over. And that fits right in with the overall arcing lyrical themes of the album. Yeah. And so, even for a song that was written not in time with the rest of them, it still plays perfectly. And it just shows that all things in time are possible. Track 12, All Things in Time. Our last song, question mark? All Things in Time plays Coil Out with a nice down-tempo ballad. 
It solid playing again, no flash. The lyrics round out the themes that have been running up to this point. All the questions of self doubt have led to realizations, to acceptance. And to an extent, the lyrics here, they echo the sentiments of the opening lines of Come Down. And the, the standout verse on this one for me is, I've been changing my mind through with looking behind. It's a crash course in life. The best you can do is get by. No getting out alive. I'll hold a light for you to see all things in time, all you'll ever need. And so I think there's a lot to that, a lot of maturity to that. A lot of that's applicable to the growth that they had shown up to this point. Yeah, and we end on that lyric. Yep. And the album's over. Or is it? So, the CD is done playing in a traditional CD player. Now, the mid to late 90s were a wonderland of the emergence of new medias, of what was possible with technologies. And if you took the CD out of your CD player, popped it into the CD-ROM drive of your desktop computer, then accessed the website that that enhanced CD feature opened, there was a bonus song that you could stream through the website that you could only access by putting the CD into your computer. Or it was just track 13 if you had the Japanese version of the album. Man, we used to have to do a lot of work to get those uh, hidden songs. Yeah. Track 13, question marks, is called Silo Lullaby. It's a nice track, but I think it was the right decision to not include it on the regular album release. Really? I was going to say it's a nice, slow wrap-up. It is, but I think All Things in Time itself is also a nice, slow wrap-up. It is. They both are. And so I think two nice, slow wrap-ups would have been a bit redundant. That end, lyrically, this would be a departure from the cohesiveness of the rest of the album. So Silo Lullaby is a track that is exactly what it claims to be. It's a lullaby that discusses being, essentially, a human in a bunker pushing the button to destroy the world. The lyrics read, Green button like a lantern, illuminate this cavern, and outside, nothing matters anymore. My instinct won't deceive me. My senses will not leave. When there's no one left to grieve, I won't mourn. Good night. Don't feel... I always will watch over you, my dear. Good night, sleep well. I'll see you with the rest of them in hell. My hand won't shake the console. My handcuff will not rattle as I win the final battle of all wars. And down beneath the ocean, I'll dream of wings in motion. Blinding glory, that'll show them what freedom's for. Good night, don't fill. I'll always watch over you, my dear. Good night, sleep well. I'll see you with the rest of them in hell. And so for now, farewell. So it's definitely a happy song. Yep. Keeps up with the real positive, upbeat, and the guitar and everything go along right with it, right? Yep. This one was later included on the 1999 collection called P.S., which was a Toad retrospective. After they had broken up the label to try to squeeze every last cent out of this band, even though they had already had, prior to the release of Coil, put out a best-of collection. They put out one more album, and the label then puts out another best-of collection. Because they wouldn't pay to market Coil, but they'll pay to produce physical copies of a new collection of something they've already packaged. There's a phrase within any kind of big industry work. There's never money to do things right, but there's always money to do them over. 100%. This is 100% the label dropping the ball, not being willing to support Toad as a band. This 
incredible album that they put together. And unfortunately, Toad was the one who had to suffer for it. Yep. They put in the work. They gave us the best work of their career. And then they died. They did not die. No. Their band did. Okay, the band died. For the record, the members are all okay. <laughs> They're fine. To bring it back to that interview from 2017, you touched briefly on this. Glenn said, on a creative level, I think that some of those songs are some of the best we ever made. The album certainly contains some of the most mature songs I had written up to that point. And production-wise, we sounded great as well. Yet there were a lot of things going on in the background that were dark and unpleasant, especially in regards to the business aspect of things. But musically speaking, I really like where I was when I was writing Coil. I was in a deeper, more introspective, and somewhat spiritual place, and those songs still impress me today. And I think that's a perfect wrap-up for the album. And I agree. They have something to be proud of here. Certainly. So, your three favorites from the album. Oh, it changes every time. You go ahead and say yours. Okay. To count them down, number three, throw it all away. Solid. Up yours. Something that's a solid choice. I know, and earlier when we were talking about it, you're like, hey, I don't know about this one. No, but you made some good, like, we talked through it, and you made some good points about it. Okay, I can accept that I changed your mind. Yeah. I'll allow it. <laughs> Jeez, man. I was kind of disappointed when you came around to the album as a whole. I know, we need something we disagree on. We need something we disagree on. After we first talked about it, and you gave it your first listen through, and we talked, and you're like, I don't care for this at all. I was like, yes, we get to argue. And then we went to record it the first time, you're like, oh, I've, I've changed my mind. And I was like, dang it! I wanted to try to sell you on it, so I'm glad we at least had some of that. Silver medal goes to whatever I fear. Yeah. And my number one would be Damn Wood Break. Okay. Little Man, Big Man, and Crazy Life are both really close there. You know, they're close. Yeah. Number four, easily interchangeable if I'm in just a slightly different mood. But, you know, it's a strong album. Start to finish, it's, it's, it's great work. All right, I'm ready. Okay. Number three, Crazy Life. Okay. Number two, Damn Wood Break. And number one, Rings. Okay, nice. I don't think either of us have bad picks in this. I don't think so. Do we need to say it that Coil, I think, holds up? Oh, Coil holds up for sure. I get a feeling that most of the albums we're going to be doing, we're going to end with saying they hold up. I think we've got some <laughs> that may not, though. I'm excited to find out. I am, too. We have an extensive list. We'll see what we get to, but probably for at least the first season or two, most of them will, will hold up. Yeah, I think a lot of them are going to. I have a sneaking suspicion. If we like them enough to put them on the podcast, they should pro they probably been enough to us that they stuck around. But maybe we'll throw something in there that we liked then that we don't like now. Yeah, I mean, you never know what we're going to talk about because, I mean, Alien Ant Farm wasn't on the list. It's true. It's true. We And we got a lot of Alien Ant Farm in this conversation. They've gotten a lot of mileage tonight. They sure did. <laughs> I do want to ask, what are we doing next, Mark? That is a good question. We've debated it. We've gone back and forth. I think that we've settled on the best rock and roll album in the Radiohead catalog to not be recorded by Radiohead. <laughs> and that is Muse's debut, Showbiz. Yep. And then following that, we are going to do one of my favorite albums from 1996, White Light, White Heat, White Trash by Social Distortion. Oh, we can just build it. We don't need to give it too far away. Otherwise, people are going to skip Muse and be like, oh, I just want to listen to Social D. Oh, that's true. I would skip Muse to listen to Social D as well. Any closing thoughts? You know, I look forward to talking to you again, Mark, in two weeks. Oh, Tom, 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 Tom. Yes. One important final question for you. Okay. Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. This has been Once Every Two Weeks. Once Every Two Weeks is brought to you in part by the Geek Lounge and Burrow Baracho Records. 